Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Christmas is often seen as a time uh, which there is much focus upon family and friends. Uh, no doubt many of you have schedules in the coming days and weeks ahead that are just full of various activities and events. Yet this morning, as should be in all cases, Christmas should be centered and focused on the Savior, which is Christ the Lord, that was born of a miraculous birth so many years ago in Bethlehem. You know, when you speak of a miraculous birth and you think of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, His birth was like no other birth in the history of humanity. I know in a few weeks there will be press reports out, particularly uh, on next Sunday, January the 1st. Uh, all across counties and states, across this great country of ours, folks, uh, in one sense, wanting to be uh, the first to have their child on New Year's Day in 2023. But the birth of Christ was distinct and distinct from any other birth in humanity. Let me just give you a couple of ways in which the Scripture declares its distinction. I think, first off, it was distinct because the eternal God robed Himself in flesh uh, as beautiful as sweet, as tender as you believe that your child and rightfully believe that your child is, they are not divinely given. They are not robed divine. They are not God incarnate. That alone made his birth distinct, but there are other ways. For instance, the birthplace of Jesus Christ was prophesied not 10 years or 20 years, but nearly 700 years before its occurrence. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 speaks of Judea, of Bethlehem, Judea, 700 years before it was brought to pass. His birth was distinct because it had been anticipated by countless believers since the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, that first promise of His coming, that God, the seed of a woman, would crush the head of the serpent. How many years? 6,000 years in advance had been anticipated. The birth of Christ, uh, its timeline was made clear by Daniel the prophet. In Daniel chapter 6 and throughout those chapters, if you find the prophecy concerning the weeks which will be anticipated in which the Messiah would be cut off. <clears throat> in Genesis chapter eight, uh, 38, we have his family line being announced through the line of Judah and that the scepter would never depart out of its hand. Isaiah, in chapter 11, even declinates the specific family by which Jesus Christ would be born in earth. In Isaiah chapter 11, in verses 1 and 2, you have there, out of the stem of Jesse would come one, a branch, if you will, there the scripture records. The day his birth occurred, it was announced by the presence of an angelic host. Now, I've met many uh, maternity ward nurses in my lifetime, and I would say of them by and large, many of them are kind and sweet, and someone might want to metaphorically call them angels, but they are not a heavenly host. But the Lord Jesus' birth came by announcement of a heavenly host. His birth fulfilled specific individual promises that were made. For instance, there was an individual promise made in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham that through a seed would come a mighty nation of people, and that through that lineage there would be a blessing to all people. It is not likely that the Jewish people have been a blessing to all people and tribes and kindred. But that great distinctive Son of God that robed Himself in flesh 
has been a blessing to all tribes and tongues and kindred. And that is, in fact, a promise fulfilled to Abraham, who had long waited to see this heir. I think specifically of Mary in Luke chapter 1, that she would be born of a son, and that she should call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God with us. The promise was fulfilled in Luke chapter 2. I think of Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. A promise fulfilled that that which uh, his espoused wife Mary had was of God and that this was to be the Son of God that would come. This would be the Messiah. This would be the Yeshua. That promise fulfilled in Luke chapter 2. I think of Simeon. Not a character that we consider much. I'm not talking of Simon Peter. But I'm rather talking about Simeon, that old man who at the conclusion of 40 days, as Joseph and Mary entered the temple to offer sacrifices, here comes this old man who had been, the scripture says, promised of the Holy Ghost that he would not die before he saw the salvation of Israel. What a promise of faith. Can you imagine, I know not when this promise was given to him, but can you imagine a man having this promise in his heart? And each passing year, getting closer to the grave than he was the year before, waiting for the fulfillment of this prophecy. And now in his years, not, not much unlikely like uh, Anna was later on in the very chapter, waiting for the promise of fulfillment, and it was brought true. These are wonderful promises as it concerns the Lord Jesus Christ, and they bear historically and experientially a distinction between his birth and between ours. Yet I think of another distinction. As you encounter a sweet little child, it takes a hard-hearted individual to reject a sweet little child. Years ago, I went to church with a lady, and uh, her son was a couple years older than me. And uh, someone would make the statement around her, say, say, I've never seen an ugly baby. And she would often respond, I have, it's him, talking about her son. Ugliest child, I, I made him take it back. I said, it's not mine, she would say. Rare is it in the heart of an individual that have a disdain for a child. Yet when you think about the Lord Jesus Christ, throughout his life there really is one phrase that could consolidate with grand prophecy the expectation and the expression of many towards the babe in the nativity, all the way to the Savior that was upon the cross, all the way to this day as there is a Christ the Lord that's seated on the right-hand throne of God. And that phrase, those three words, which I would say would identify so much of this world and those that follow it, is simply this, rejected of men. Rejected. Even as a child, the Lord Jesus was rejected. Uh, rejection that the Lord Jesus experiences unlike anything that any human will ever endure. There are many that experience rejection in this life. There's different types of rejection. For instance, you could speak at length about uh, rejection in the form of maybe a surface rejection. What someone might experience at school or what someone might experience in a group setting where you're just not the favorite of the group. You're, you're not the star quarterback or, or you're not the, uh, the most brilliant student. And as that, you're not as accepted in a group and therefore there's a little taint of rejection upon it. Speaking of rejection, some might have experienced in their life social rejection. I often think of uh, uh, Richard Milhouse Nixon, the, the president. In 1968, he was elected. In 1974, he was elected. And what's quite historically interested, interesting during his election is they were two overwhelming, sound electoral victories. In fact, historically, they were called landslides. 
In fact, his last election, I believe 1972, uh, no other president since has gained uh, near, I should say with the exception of one, no other president has gained near the electoral number of votes that Nixon did. Yet two years later, due to crimes that he had uh, um, wanted, desired others to commit for him, etc., he became socially scorned. He was the butt of every joke. Even to this day, people wink at him. And when they identify six years in the presidency, it's a little bit of social rejection that people have towards him. Someone had said with regards of surface and social rejection, uh, they're like breaking off fingernails. Ultimately, they'll grow back and the pain will at some level subside. But there's a greater form of rejection. I think about parental rejection, familial rejection, those that are supposed to love you, those that are supposed to care for you, those that are supposed to have your best interest in mind, those that perhaps were so close to you that their expressions at times was an encouragement upon one's heart. This type of rejection is devastating. It's like a deep, fatal wound. It creates a fear of future rejections. In fact, when I speak of it creating a fear of future rejections, it causes someone to be overly sensitive to statements that are made, always thinking that someone, somewhere, it might be the person next to them or beside them and certainly behind them, that will bring about their ultimate demise. No one can they trust. That's what familiar type rejection is. It's often a motivation for the rejection that they have had to cause them to reject others at the very onset. Familiar rejection causes self-rejection, causes them to have great disdain for themselves. It's not biblical, for they see themselves not in the very image of God. They see themselves rather as worthless. I would note of all these types and levels of rejections, if there is a human that has experienced all of them, or one that has just experienced one of them, Christ experienced all of these rejections to a greater extent. We can speak of the social rejection and I would note that he was born in a stable. His community failed him. That's what we would say today. There was no room for him in the first aid area. There was no room for him in the palace. There was no room for him in the, the synagogues. There was no room for him in the temples. There was no room for him in the inn. There was no room in all the houses for him. He had to be born in a stable. That's a social a surface rather rejection. Insomuch in John chapter 1 and verse 46, he lived and was called a Nazarene. In John chapter 1 and verse 46, Philip had uh, talked to Nathaniel. He said, come and see this man from Nazareth. And, uh, uh, and Nathaniel responds, can there be any good thing out of Nazareth? I always like what Philip's response was. Come and see. He didn't answer the question. You know why he didn't answer the question? because that's how everybody felt towards Nazareth. There's a level of surface rejection towards him. You speak of social rejection? Well, he was hated by the religious class. The Pharisees and the Sadducees all sought to kill him, to entrap him, to embarrass him, to trick him, to misuse him. Ultimately, they caused him to be brought for trial and crucified him. Give us Barabbas was the cry of all of those present on that day. That's a social rejection. You think of a familiar rejection. I think about the disdain of his brethren. As he's standing there before all of those, they said, is not this Joseph's son? Are not his brethren with us? 
Jude and James. Are they not with us? They were present, but not at that time believers. That's a little bit of familiar rejection. I think, I, of course, of being betrayed by his friends. Judas Iscariot walked with him, talked with him, communed with him, aided him, helped him, served him, betrayed him, rejected by those close to him. Note John chapter 1 that we read just a moment ago. I'm going to draw your eyes to two verses. He, verse number 10, was in the world. And the world was what? Made by him. Now when you think of that phrase, the world made by him, Colossians gives, chapter 1 gives great uh, depth to that, that by him doth all things exist. When you look at the world, it includes the ethos, the ethnic groups, all the people were made by him. It includes the nature that is present. You consider all the trees. You consider the atmosphere. You can see in the evenings, in a cloudless evening, if there's not much light pollution, you can look to the heavens and you can see the constellations and you can see the stars and you can see the distant planets. All of this was created by him. And the highest point of his creation in the Garden of Eden happened on the sixth day. And you might have a pet at home. You might have a little dog or a kitty cat. You might have some rabbits, guinea pigs. What I call is ferrets. That's an animal, isn't it, of some sort? Look like an oversized rat. You'd have an animal. You'd have a snake, a lizard. I was in a pet store the other day, and this girl was buying crickets. And I mean, they were weighing them out. I had never seen this happen. I was amazed. And uh, it dawned on me she wasn't buying crickets for pets. Then I felt poor for the crickets. But God's highest point of creation was on the sixth day. On the sixth day, he made someone. And the scripture articulates it this way. He made him in his own image. Verse number 10, the world was made by him. Note that last phrase, and the world knew him not. I think of the book of Acts Paul there's left Thessalonica and he's coming to Athens and he's moved in his spirit. All these Stoics and these philosophers and all their expressions of wisdom and concern and all of their, their idols and graven images and mementos and how they would consider what one should endeavor and what the highest point of life is and goal. And some thought it was success in life and some embraced a hedonism form of philosophy of joy and following all the desires of your heart. But they had one structure and this moved Paul to his spirit. They had an altar to the unknown God. The world knew him not. How could you not know the God that created you? I need only to exit these doors and to look up and behold his handiwork and I can see a general revelation for truly the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth forth his handiwork. That all of the creation shows the full magnitude of the power of the Godhead mightily. Romans chapter number 1 and verse 18. The world knew him not. But be more specific in verse number 11. He came unto his own. Who's his own? This is not the world general. This is not the Gentile world. 
This is the Jewish world. I, at the outset of this message, I gave you a list of some seven or eight things. 700 years prior to his birth, Micah prophesied Bethlehem, Judea. Approximately four and a half, five thousand years before his birth. The Lord in the Garden of Eden made a pledge to humanity of Adam and of Eve. And he said, from the seed of a woman, which is a biological impossibility, there would come a deliverer. It is the first mention of the gospel. And they had this long-waited, expectant Savior. Abraham waited for the son, Isaac. For through that son would come one that would bless all nations. Isaiah identified it had come out of the uh, stock of Jesse. What's so amazing about that is the miracle that surrounded that. For had there not been Naomi and her husband Elimelech that would go into Moab in a time of famine and difficulty and move away, it seems out of the will of God, there would be no Ruth that would be the one mentioned in Matthew chapter 1 and the genealogy of our Savior. God knew exactly what he was doing down to the very family and the place and the location and the timeline. In fact, if you were to take an time and look into Matthew chapter 2, as the Magi move from the east, they see this light, the star they call it, and it moves. Not in an orbital fashion, it moves in a supernatural fashion. I believe it really was the glory of God that they were pursuing. I submitted to us last night in the challenge that it could be derived from the scriptures. It could be looked at that these Babylonians, perhaps these men from the east, were believers. That's what caused them to look for it. They knew the time was present because of the prophecies of Daniel. They knew the general region where it was. All of this they would have had. And they came unto Herod, and Herod makes an interesting statement. He goes to all of his scholars and scribes and says, where is he to be born? And all they had to do was open the scriptures, and he got the city right. I submit to you, he came into the Jews and they wanted nothing to do with him. Note verse 11. He came unto his own and his own received him not. Peter writing of a similar expression in 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, speaking of Jesus Christ, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. A rock of offense a stone of stumbling, they stumbled at the word. He's offensive. They rejected him. Hold your place here in John chapter 1. We'll come back momentarily. Flip over to the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. I mentioned Isaiah chapter 11 a moment ago, but I really I want to focus, I think, on one passage. Verse 3. Just for time's sake. Note in verse 3. Isaiah's honing in about the Messiah. He's speaking primarily of the sufferings of the Messiah that will come. But notice the vivid descriptions given in verse 3. He is, Isaiah 53, 3, he is despised and rejected of men. If you write in your Bible, he is despised, underline that. Number two, rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. And note the last part of verse 53. We esteemed him not. In what ways was Jesus Christ despised? Man's contempt for him 
is often shown. Partly man shows his contempt for the Lord Jesus Christ in the little attention in which they pay to him. I was in the store the other day, as I know that you are too. You've probably had this experience. And over the loudspeaker, in fact, this got me thinking, and I saw this little clip uh, that was forwarded to me. It was on YouTube, and it is, it is um, the music from a Kmart in the 1970s. It was, it's five hours long. I didn't listen to it, but it was nostalgic for the 20 seconds I tuned in. And fast forward till today, as like way back in the 1900s, you know, you fa- it's a joke. You fast forward to today, you're in the stores, and still occasionally you'll sing, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room in heaven and nature. And that was the phrase I heard in the store. It caught my attention. And I look around, teeming masses of people. No attention given to the birth of a king. No intention given to his teachings. You want to see how he was despised? Look at their treatment of him in and around the time of his crucifixion, all the way leading up, or I should say in and around the time of his birth, leading up all the way to the crucifixion. He had nowhere to lay his head. Oft times he spoke of that in the scriptures. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. The disciples often showed their disdain for him. As he's praying in agony in the garden, what are they doing? They're sleeping. Sometimes the disciples, the ones he communed with the greatest, those that he had the grandest affection for, they seem completely mystified at his teaching. And for text, you could go to John chapter 14. He said, let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in me, believe also in this. In my father's house are many mansions. He later tells them, he said, I'm going to go away. And they said, well, tell us where you're going and we'll follow you. Lord, just show us the way. He's speaking of the crucifixion. And they're mystified by what he's speaking, but he has clearly taught on it over and over and over again. The Mount Transfiguration. There they see something that no human eye had ever saw. The beauty and majesty, the undeniable expectation that he was indeed the Son of Man. What is it that Peter says? Let us build three altars. We'll build one to Moses and one to Elijah and one to you. Well, the problem with that is, guess what? Two of them ain't divine. What are you thinking? He's despised. They're mystified at his teaching, though he often explained himself. See how he's despised among his disciples. Sometimes they deny him. Yea, even at the greatest trial of his life. Well, look how he's despised his advent. We've mentioned these. But he's rejected his community. He's hunted by Herod. He flees to Nazarene. He is called, or flees to Egypt. He is called a Nazarene that excited all of the contempt that the human heart had. Isaiah put it rightly. He is despised. Note that next phrase. He's rejected of men. The idea, man forsaken. One, one author put it this way. In these three words states the whole of human history of how man regards his treatment of his Redeemer. Rejected of men. Many times it was of his disciples. I'm remembering of the great host of folks that followed him. Yet when he revealed himself as the Son of God and when he spoke of his coming and what his calling was... Many went their own way and followed him no more. John 6, 66. Some of his believers 
believed him, like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, but they'd only visit him at night for fear of the Jews. Many rulers and leaders kept great distance from him. John chapter 7 verse 48. Though in his youth they were greatly impressed by his knowledge of the law. The apostles forsook him and fled in Matthew chapter 28 verse 56. He's rejected of men. Man forsaken is the idea. Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Man of sorrows has the expressions of pain. He's a man that is well accustomed to pain in life. Acquainted with grief, sickness. He knows heartache and he knows sorrow. He was a man that was notoriously known for the troubles that he endured. His life was one of consistent series of sorrows from the cradle all the way to the cross on Golgotha. His sorrows could seemingly appear on every page of the gospel of Matthew through John. From being sought by Herod, fleeing to Egypt, eating his bread in sorrow, his goodness that he showed upon humanity was met with a hardened heart and the unbelief of man. He's contradicted of sinners. There was forwardness of the disciples. The even, yea, I would note in the Sea of Galilee, he's sleeping. And the climate of life, what do they do? Arouse him from sleep. In John chapter 4, he said, I must go through Samaria. He goes through Samaria, goes by the well to rest. And the whole reason why he had to go through Samaria is the encounter with a woman that he would meet at the well in John chapter 4. But you know where the disciples are the entire time? They were hungry, so they left and went down to McDonald's to get a McRib. Now, I just a little bit. What I'm saying is they were often not on the same page with him. Doing their own thing, following their own heart. Even, yea, even arguing once, coming unto him saying, Lord, which of us is the greatest? There's the facilitating cries of the society which he lived in. I mentioned one moment ago how it would seem in his social rejection that all stood there and said, give us Barabbas. You know what they were crying the week before? Hosanna, Hosanna. My, if you put your hope in the whims of society, what great sorrow would that bring? For as he's riding that unbridled colt and he comes down the way and they've thrown out the palm leaves and they began, uh, Hosanna, to cry aloud, Hosanna, Hosanna. In his foreknowledge, he knew what would occur a week later. That same motley crowd crucifying. Give us Barabbas. As he hung on the cross, he experienced the sorrow of the antagonism of the malefactors on either side. The mocking of those that gathered around as they reviled him. Save thyself! He endured the temptation of Satan after 40 days of fasting. He prayed and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood. Upon the cross he endured a great rejection as the Father hid his face from him. And the Lord cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When he thirsted, they gave him vinegar. When he died, they took the spear and pierced his side. When he was removed for burial on the cross, not enough time elapsed for him to be given a proper burial. They had to hurry through that important process. 
And he might be one of the only men who was common in so many ways as he was the Son of Man, whose tomb was guarded out of the complete and utter disdain for his ministry. He was rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Note the next phrase there in verse number three. We hid hid our face from him. At times, even those close to him did not want to look upon him. He was at times an embarrassment to them, not unlike John the Baptist in the times before. The idea of turning their face from them is the idea of what would occur in Leviticus chapter 13 when one that had leprosy would cry about unclean, unclean. And as their face being marred by this wicked rash and sickness, people would avert their eyes so they did not gaze upon it. This is what Isaiah says that individuals feel about the Messiah. They'll avert their eyes. He concludes verse 3 that they are despised and we esteemed him not. He was not esteemed by the professors of law. He was not esteemed by people of high and low estate. He was not esteemed by the rulers of the day and not by many of the common folks. Many of them followed him only to be fed in their bellies. He was not esteemed by scribes and Pharisees. He was not esteemed by Romans nor Jews. Dishonor and disgrace by the masses... He would one day be hung on a cross and those passing by, Matthew chapter 27, would wag their head at him in derision. Give us Barabbas. He is rejected. We, John chapter 19, have no king but Caesar. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He fed thousands. Everywhere he went, he went about doing good, and you would rather have Caesar to be your king? It should not come as our surprise that the Jews rejected him. For way back in the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel pleaded with them not to have a king, but to stay under a theocracy of God rule, and they would not then either. Give us Caesar. You want a pagan instead of the divine son of God? You want a murderous man as most of the Caesars were? Or do you want one full, John chapter 1, of grace and truth? You want one that's a servant to the God of this world? Or would you prefer having the God of the universe as your king? You want one that is an abuser of man? Or one that is the creator of man? You want one that ultimately will bring about the demise of Israel? Why, within 40 years or so of the crucifixion of our Lord, Israel is laid bare. The temple is ruined and destroyed. No doubt they would cry even at that time, give us Caesar. Caesar, Herod, Barabbas. They preferred overwhelming, uh, were preferred by the overwhelming majority, but not Christ. Such is it today. Humanity and their arrogance and their pride crow aloud in unrestrained bellows. Give us anything or anybody, but not Christ. He is as Isaiah well appoints the feelings of humanity rejected of men. Anything, but not the Christ. Anyone could have visited him in Bethlehem as the shepherds did. The Pharisees could have, Herod could, but nobody chose to except for the shepherds. 
I think ultimately what they do not realize, those that would reject Christ, is that one day their rejection of Him will result in a rejection of them and for many a rejection of the life that now is. I think of Romans chapter 1 and verse 28 where he says that God would give them over to a reprobate mind. And that's exactly what the word reprobate means, rejected. Peter wrote this in Peter chapter 2. To whom coming is a lively stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and, this is our feeling towards Christ, precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up into a spiritual house, an holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. He said, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, precious. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. That's the grand distinction. To the world that is, Jesus Christ is and always will be rejected of men. They might appreciate some of the good he did. They might have a a nod to some of the abilities he had with folks. But as a Savior and as a King and as a Lord, the world over has rejected him. Note, if you will, in John, as we circle back, note in John in verse number 12, Probably one of the grandest words in all of the Scripture is found in the beginning of verse number 12. But. He came into the world that He created. All of humanity that has made the image of God, they knew Him not. He came into His own and they received Him not. But. As many as received Him. Thank God for the letter M. Thank God that there were some that received him by faith and to them gave he power to become the sons of God even to them which believe on his name. And to those that have believed on his name he has given power to become the sons of God and Jesus Christ is precious. It's a precious time to consider his nativity. It's a precious time to consider his death and his burial and his resurrection from the dead. It's a very precious time Because he indeed is precious. For he has translated me by his power from a kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. No more do I desire the rebellious rot of my own decision. No more do I desire the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. But all now I have received by marvelous free gift of God by faith. So what is Christmas? It's a time in which we reflect on that long-promised and precious Savior. It's a time in which we consider the coming of grace and truth. My, I am so thankful. John chapter 1 and verse 17. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Not just truth. The objective truth of Christ was that you are sinners and you are under the wrath of God. But thank God for His marvelous grace. For where sin did abound, God's grace did much more abound. It overflowed. It was superfluous. It was greater. It's far more expansive than any sin. And through that marvelous grace, I'm given the promise of a new life. I can consider the grace and truth. 
I can consider that free gift of God. That salvation that came through his crucifixion and his resurrection. That confidence through his resurrection that provides me hope that one day he'll come again. is all embodied in the marvelous incarnation of Jesus Christ. The question is not if Christ was born. Nor is the question of if he will come again. The question humanity must receive. The question that they must answer is what will they do with Christ? Will they reject him? Hide their face from him? Will they receive him? And consider him precious indeed. Thank God for the grace and truth they can for Jesus Christ. Let's stand with the Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.